The hard and stiff will be broken. The soft and supple will prevail. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Kevin Foster. Kevin is a former Division I javelin thrower and aspiring Olympic athlete. He's also the owner of the Javelin Anatomy Instagram page, which is dedicated to the training of javelin throwers. I heard of Kevin through past guests Jake Turo's and Joel Smith's podcast and really loved his approach to training. His overarching general philosophies on how a human should move, feel, and be, and live their life, I really agree with. And today we kind of touched on some of these things. Some of the some of the rabbit holes we dove into revolved around the hips, feet, spine, and fascia, and how we can teach relaxation to our athletes. And many times you, you, you we have a very tense athlete. We have an athlete that really wants to get after it. And many times when you watch it, a very elite athlete, it's the relaxed athlete that's winning. It's the relaxed athlete that is performing to the best of his abilities. And many times we're not implementing that into our training. And that was something that I really took out of this podcast and something that I'm going to dive into in my future training and how I'm going to implement with my athletes. So hopefully you guys get something out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm excited for you to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Looking forward to it. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of like how you got into the world of sports performance, how you got into the weird world of javelin that you're in now, and kind of the lessons you've learned through this journey? Yeah, man. So, uh, I mean, the short answer is, you know, I, I'm a former Division One javelin thrower from the University of Connecticut. My, my PR was 72 meters, which for people who aren't really familiar with javelin, distances that's like it's a it's a solid uh ncaa division one throw right so 70 meters would put you kind of like at the top level of ncaa 80 meters would put you kind of like the international level of competition uh so i was kind of sitting you know right above 70 meters so you know now i'm running the javelin anatomy instagram page just kind of taking lessons from my javelin journey uh and kind of just sharing it uh, with everybody, just because I feel like, you know, even outside of javelin, there's so many lessons, uh, just from one, like the mindset stuff, but two, even the training stuff, there's so much, uh, just kind of outside the box, outside of the mainstream way of thinking kind of stuff that you can apply from javelin to other sports and, and really just like life lessons in general, you know, and then I would say, you know, the, the longer answer and this is kind of the, the fun part is, you know, when I, I would say my, my whole javelin anatomy journey uh, really started my freshman year when I got to college, um, right? I, I didn't have anything planned out about an Instagram page at that point, but, you know, I, I got to UConn barely having a mark that kind of qualified me for division one, right? In high school, I threw 189 feet. Um, and, and usually like 200 feet is like the threshold to get like real division one recruiting. Uh, so I, I barely kind of made the cut there. I only got uh, recruited by two schools, uh, Rhode Island and UConn. Uh, so I, I, and I pretty much knew I was going to UConn regardless of whether or not I did track. So I was very, very grateful for the opportunity to be a part of the program there. You know, looking back now, I laugh because I was so clueless about what it meant to be a Division One javelin thrower. Uh, I showed up at UConn, <laughs> like just completely unprepared, so in over my head. Um, I joke around saying that I, I was probably the least athletic athlete to ever be admitted into a division one sports program. You know, we, we do kind of like fall fitness testing. And one of the tests is a 400 meter sprint. Right. And I showed up and I ran a 67 second 400 meter sprint. And, and, and then like, when I say I left it all out on the track for that 67 seconds, then I had to lay down on the ground for like 20 minutes after, like I was so like I was not ready for that level of, of anything. Uh, I was just so out of shape. So like I said, just so in over my head. Um, and, and then the other test you do is the quad test, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's basically a 30 meter sprint, uh, backwards overhead shot put throw, uh, a standing long jump and then a standing triple long jump. And I came in dead last on the entire track team in. Like dead when and when I say dead last on the entire track team, there was a shot putter who was in my recruiting class who was coming off of back-to-back summers of ACL reconstruction, and I finished last behind him. Right, so like I was I was just not ready for this, 
this whole ordeal. So that's pretty much where my journey began. It, it began because I was just so embarrassed. I was so, you know, I was insecure, right? I felt like, you know, here I am part of this amazing track and field program and I'm just finishing dead last in everything, right? Like I, I'm not ready for this. And combining that with the fact that I was so grateful for this opportunity from the coaches, um, I just felt so, so deeply compelled to just make a humongous change. Um, so it was pretty much that freshman year was, was just a huge turning point for me, um, you know, combined with just lots of other, you know, academic struggles, you know, school academics, you know, girl problems, friend problems. And I was just kind of like in that valley, man. And so that's when, you know, I kind of turned to Javelin to kind of turn around. I use Javelin as kind of my vessel for, uh, you know, personal growth through athletic growth. And pretty much I, I, <laughs> it's funny now thinking about it because the reason that I got into all of this exercise science stuff, uh, I was just Googling you know, browsing like bodybuilding websites, whatever, trying to find ways to, you know, lose fat, get in shape, whatever. Uh, and one of the websites that I came across was jumpscience.com, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with, with Dan Bach from Jump Science, but that was like the website that introduced me to all of this amazing, you know, outside the box, critical, you know, creative thinking applied to exercise science. And you know, coming across that just lit a fire inside of me. Um, so, so that was kind of my first real introduction into uh, exercise science in general. And I think it was just the perfect resource to come across because, you know, he, he challenged the status quo. And I think when that's like your first exposure to something, you know, you don't get locked into all the, the other dogma that maybe is out there, right? Like I know a lot of other people who, who will do you know, research into subjects, but, you know, they're on like bodybuilding.com. It's like, you know, that's not really applicable to your sport, man. But, but yeah, so that was, that was like my first real introduction into all of this stuff and, uh, you know, kind of using Dan's principles from jump science. And then, uh, and then also I found Joel's website, just fly sports. I just went deep down the rabbit hole, um, into, you know, sports performance and, and just applied it to myself kind of, also simultaneously with a lot of kind of personal growth kind of reading, but, but yeah, that was kind of like my journey from, <laughs> from fat unathletic 189 foot javelin thrower, Kevin to, you know, really starting down that journey of, of, you know, ja re real javelin throwing real athleticism, you know, honing in on that truth of, you know, what does it really mean to be an, uh, an elite athletic human kind of uh, performer? Yeah. And, I'm interested in what that kind of first year looked like after you made the, you got bit by the bug, you got bit by the, oh, all right, now I'm going to commit to this. What was that kind of, that first year when you're getting into all this, what were, what were those kind of jumps like? You had those newbie jumps. What was that kind of like? Yeah. I mean, so in terms of like athleticism, you know, that was my first real exposure to, to, you know, real sort of training. So, um, you know, it, to be fair, I would say it was more so like, after my freshman year, freshman year was kind of like the research phase. I was like, wow, like there's an entire world out there that I had, I had no idea existed. Um, so I just dove deep into reading, you know, jump science, uh, just fly sports, T nation, uh, T nation kind of brought me to Eric Cressy, uh, brought me to like John Berardi, right. So nutrition, weightlifting, athleticism, right. Anatomy. Uh, it brought me to all this different stuff where ultimately I decided I went into UConn as an engineering student and I just could not justify staying in engineering after coming across these ideas that just lit a fire inside of me. Um, so I ended up switching my major, which was also, that was kind of an important turning point for me too, because in order to get into the exercise science program, I kind of had to really work my butt off in the classroom and get great grades in like anatomy and biology classes. So that kind of just caused me to buckle down. And I was literally just living, breathing, sleeping, uh, anatomy, physiology, weightlifting, nutrition, and just applying everything to myself uh, that summer after my freshman year. Um, and then like, 
uh, like I said, like the, the reason I even came across all that stuff in the first place was I, I needed to get my butt in shape, uh, first of all, and kind of over the course of that year, you know, I, I did get in shape and my strength levels went through the roof. Um, you know, everything was going great. Uh, but then the, the important part of the story too, is I, I had torn my UCL at the end of my freshman year. So I had to get Tommy John surgery at the end of the summer. So it was kind of like, everything was going great, going great, going great, going great. And then it was like, I hit the wall, I needed the surgery. Um, so that was kind of another big kind of roadblock for me. But I had so much momentum at that point that I was like, all right, like, I, I can't stop here. I have, I have to come back stronger from this. So actually, the night before my elbow surgery, I went onto the notes section of my phone and I wrote down three goals. Um, I said, by the end of my collegiate career, I want to be conference champion. I want to be national champion. And I want to make the Olympic trials. And, you know, it, like fast forward, I didn't reach any of those goals, but uh, that was kind of like where my mind was at. Like I wrote down these goals that I had no business writing down at that point. But anyway, so after I got the surgery, I actually reached out to Dan Bach from Jump Science. I emailed him and I said, uh, hey, man, like I know this is a super vague question, but uh, <laughs> do you have any advice on coming back from Tommy John surgery? And you know, being stronger and more athletic than I was before. Um, and, you know, it was just such a stupid question. Like, it was so vague. And, like, like really, like, this guy doesn't even, you know, he's not even a javelin coach. Like, why am I reaching out to him? But he, he actually answered with such a thoughtful uh, response. And he gave me three pieces of advice. He said, get really, really strong, right? Focus on just the big lifts. Don't, don't waste any energy on bodybuilding, ab circuits, like, just, focus all of your energy on getting as strong as possible. He said, eat a ridiculous amount, right? Athletes got to eat. That's, that's his, his, his motto there. And then sleep a lot and, and limit your um, alcohol consumption, like going out, partying, whatever, just like keep the goal to goal, stay focused. And then I followed that to a T and by the end of my sophomore year, right? That was my Tommy John year. So I redshirted by the end of that season, in the summer, I had put, uh, it was like a hundred pounds onto my deadlift, 50 plus pounds onto my squat, maybe closer to a hundred pounds. I, my squat was so bad when I got there at UConn, but, and then I, my bench press went up too, but moral of the story was I ended up PRing in the javelin by six meters in my first throw back from surgery. So applying those principles worked. And, and so that was just a huge moment for me. It's, it was kind of like, okay, you know, there's the, there, there's the basic principles that work. And if you follow them to a T, you know, you'll get the results. Uh, so that, that was really cool for me. Um, and again, that was one of those moments that just it lit another fire inside of me. It's like, wow, when you do the right thing, you get results. Uh, so that kind of just set me down this deeper rabbit hole of, you know, chasing those deeper truths in sports performance. Oh, I love that. I, I have a very similar story or kind of upbringing is what, but I've, in the football world, and this is where I kind of want to dive into your javelin world, the football world, I came in, uh, injured my ankle. I was big and strong, but didn't have a lot of like the, I wasn't translating it to field. And that was the first time I started to do these challenging new truths. Like, all right, am I supposed to like, all I'm doing is squatting or should I like find a way to get better at my sport and find a way to do this. And what was nice for me is in the football world, there is programs on programs on programs. There's football experts on football experts that are that I'm able to grab upon and be like, all right, this is going to work for me. This is going to try. I'm going to do this. And it helps with you. Like, I feel like there, there is no, and now there is with you, but there was no javelin program out there. It was like, you are grabbing from maybe, like you said, Eric Cressy, you're grabbing from a baseball program, you're grabbing from a football program. What was kind of like piecing all of that together for you? And how did you, were you granted the like autonomy to be able to like write your own programs and do this in college? Yeah. Yeah. So um, so to answer the second question first is, yeah, I was really lucky. I had a, a coach who, who saw the passion and fire that like me and my javelin teammates had to kind of like discover that optimal javelin training routine. You know, he, he kind of cultivated that within us. He, he let us uh, kind of do our thing. Like, obviously, you know, we got to communicate with him and keep him in the loop. But, um, but he really gave us a lot of freedom for experimentation and discovery. So again, I'm very, very grateful for that. But yeah, so, so then to answer the first question is, 
looking back now, it's really easy for me to put into words kind of like the process. Obviously, like while it was all happening, it, it was, um, you know, it's exactly that. It was experimental. It was experimentation, trial and error. Um, but the big thing was obviously not having that javelin resource and, and you know, diving into, you know, the Eric Cressy work, the Joel Smith work, the Dan Bach work. You know, the big thing that I realized now is I had discovered that the, the big truth in javelin throwing, which is that your javelin throwing technique is limited by what your body is capable of doing, how your body's capable of moving. I say technique is limited by your movement capacity. So by getting the body really, really strong, by, by we kind of ignored mobility work back then. <laughs> that, that's kind of my, my one big regret. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just by getting the body really, really strong, by organizing our weekly training structure, um, you know, I, I, kind of, I kind of helped put together this like, uh, I guess it was kind of like a Bush Exmator kind of like uh, high, low, off day kind of like weekly split and just kind of like repeat that cycle. But it was like the high days were high, the low days were low. Just by organizing the training in a more logical sort of like coherent way based on these adaptive processes that I learned about through, you know, T Nation and Joel Smith and Eric Cressy, um, you know, we all got amazing results just from that. You know, I think a lot of javelin throwers kind of run run themselves into the ground or they'll kind of like just chase chase numbers in the weight room um, and they, they kind of lose that well-rounded kind of approach to training um, and, and kind of ignore those other kind of like subtler, finer details of, of training organization. So, so, yeah, that was kind of the big thing that I learned through that process was if you take care of the body, you can find ways to get better at throwing without actually throwing. Uh, And again, like, you know, like I said, I had the the elbow surgery. I also had two other surgeries throughout my time at UConn where I had uh, two arthroscopic hip surgeries. I had torn labrums from FAI. So I was always injured, uh, right? The FAI, like I had the surgery at the end of my career, but I definitely had like the problems throughout my whole career. And so like the the FAI kind of manifested itself in lots of different ways. And I was constantly like tweaking my back or like, I always had like shoulder pain after throwing just from a horrible lack of mobility, just from being so locked up uh, in my hips. And so it was so important for me to be able to find ways to get better at throwing without actually throwing. Um, So kind of having a career defined by injuries kind of forced me to get super creative with these other sort of methods of improvement right? The principle based kind of methods of improvement, you know, another kind of really important thing is kind of like, I call it like the conceptualization of the throw, um, which is really just a a really kind of pretentious way of describing like your technical model. But, you know, if you think, if you think you can think your way through a throw with a list of random cues, then you've lost before you have even started. Um, So for me, it was really about um, trying to figure out the whole kind of like flow of the throw from start to finish, right? Finding out how the beginning of the throw is connected to the end of the throw, right? You know, coaches will yell, oh, you got to hit your block. But in my mind, it's like, okay, well, how do I hit the block? What are the steps before hitting the block? Um, So obviously all this time I had injured without being able to throw, I spent a lot of time kind of questioning these uh, sort of like, you know, mainstream cueing strategies that javelin coaches would use, um, right? Like, do you really want to keep your arm long and do you really want to throw over the top? Like, are you sure about that? Um, do you really want to stay closed as long as possible? Like, there's there's other kind of perspectives if you, you know, understand the physics and the anatomy behind it. Uh, so that was kind of another, like I said, that was just another uh, sort of area that I focused on throughout my my college career, um, really kind of born out of the rabbit holes that I went down. Um, right. I wouldn't have been thinking about that stuff if I didn't see, you know, Joel Smith challenging the, the mainstream sprinting, uh, ideas or, you know, now it's like a Darian bar challenging, you know, sprint mechanics. Yeah. And this is, that's where I was, when you are challenging these things, and this is why I think it's so awesome in Javelin, and because like you said, Darian Barr and Joel Smith are doing that now in sprinting, were you watching 
some of the best athletes in the javelin world and being like, Hey, they're throwing this way. Coach is saying to throw a different way. Like what is that the misconstruct that you're having there? Like, where are you getting your kind of examples and ability? Like, why are you challenging these things? Where, where does that kind of thought process come from? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that there's kind of like two, two big areas. Um, the first is just, you know, any athlete can tell you like when you're throwing and you're trying really hard to like hit your block and you're trying, you're trying, you're truly legitimately like you are, that is your one goal in the throw is to hit your block. And then you don't hit your block. And then your coach yells at you to hit your block. You're like, okay, this is the most useless sort of conversation ever because I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to do what you're telling me to do and I'm not doing it. Um, so how, give me like a blueprint, like give me, give me a, another thing to try. Um, so that's just like, that's one area, right? The frustration of, you know, obviously you need to hit your block, but it's harder than that. Next? <laughs> um, yeah. What next? Yeah. Um, so then the other big area is, you know, the, the, the classic javelin cues, you know, long arm over the top, uh, stay close as long as possible. If you watch elite throwers, none of them stay close, right? They all open up on time of their block leg. All of them kind of pre-bend their arm going into the throw. All of them, when they release it, just because of the, the human anatomy and the layout of the body and the thousands of years of evolution that led up to this point, they're not throwing over the top. Their humerus is perpendicular to their torso when they release. So if you watch with like an unbiased eye and, and again, like unbiased is like heavily emphasized there because there's still coaches who will like watch videos and like, you know, Thomas Roller will very clearly be opening his left side in conjunction with his block like planting. But then the coach will still say, yeah, look at how he's staying closed. <laughs> and it's like, really? <laughs> like you think, like, what the hell? Are we just watching two different videos or what? Like, I don't understand where the disconnect is. And so, and, and by the way, like, I, I actually get a lot of, a, a lot of flack for that. Like, I've been told I'm an idiot for that perspective from, from great javelin coaches. So, like, I'm 100% open to changing my mind on the kind of stuff. Um, but, like, I want, I want to base these conversations around objective reality and not, you know, dogma and what we want to see right exactly um so that's kind of that's that's why i challenge it just because you know i i see what i see in the throw and um you know and i've shared my perspective and other people agree with me and you know so i think maybe there's something there right but the important thing is that you need to have you know the story behind it right you have to justify it um and and i think i've done a pretty good job with that so you know, in my mind, it's like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, you, you can't really argue with the logic of ideas and, um, right. And, and the human body and, and functional anatomy and, and the application of physics to the body. Yeah. And I, I like your point, like if it works, it works. And that's the one thing, like, I feel like we're starting to, like, you see a lot of struggles with it in, because as coaches, we want to see something pretty. We want to have a coaching cue to give. And many times it's, it's going to be completely different. Like it's not the same for each, each athlete. Like last, last week we talked to Joel Smith about uh, the home run hitters and some of the best home runner hitters in the league. They will talk about how their coach would tell them to keep the elbow up and that you, you watch your swing and that's not what they do at all. And like they, they just, they, they're natural and they have their technique and they, they, they found a way to hit the ball really, really far. The javelin thrower found a way to throw the like jav, far which is the goal it's it's not to look pretty it's to accomplish your goal and what's the best way for that person and that individual to get to that goal right and and that's kind of the flip side of that when you're thinking about cueing is you know if if the athlete does what you say to do if they literally follow your cue and they're a worse thrower for it then why is that your cue right you know a lot of a lot of coaches will say okay but like you know, sometimes you have to think about doing the opposite to get, you know, the result that you want, right? If you think stay closed, then you'll end up open. But in my mind, it's like, okay, but what about the athletes who succeed at staying closed? Now their throws are getting wrecked because timing is thrown off. Everything's the whole kinetic chain is just a disaster because they're closed for too long. 
um, because they, they succeeded at doing your cue. Uh, so in my mind, it's like, why would you roll the dice? Right. If it, if, if they're there, it's like the cue is one step removed from reality. Um, and, and to me, that just feels like a crapshoot, right? It's, it's like, why leave it open for interpretation? Right. Um, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, don't let the thinking brain get in the way. Find the the real goal. Find what the conscious drivers of movement should be, and base the cues around that, right? But it, it might require, you know, outside the boxing. It might require challenging the norm. It might require uh, getting a little creative with with how you cue your athletes, and it might be different from athlete to athlete. Um, but but you want to set it up so that if they succeed at doing your cue, they'll be a better thrower for it. Yeah. And building an environment where you said that that creativity is, is almost like appreciated. And then you can have like, let's say you have three, I get there's probably not a ton of jab throwers on each team. If it's, it's like hammer throw, you have like three or four on the team, three yeah. or four of the weirdos on the team that decided to throw a ball nobody knows about. But <laughs> if, if the three or four throwers, what they, they're, they're different builds and they throw it in a different way, then it's allowed to work with all of that athletes is where you see a lot of problems like the cue, and this is where you see it, especially in the track world of the coach will back it up with, well, I had a national champion do it this way. Like I had a conference champ do it this way. And it's like, yes, but what, what did that conference champ look like? Was it the same person that you're working with now? Was that conference champ going to be a conference champ regardless of your cues or not? And like, what's the best way to get to our goal again? Not what's the best way to use the cue we want to use. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and then even to just kind of like, challenge that a little bit um you know i'm also a firm believer that we're all more similar than different right we all have arms legs a spine hips feet um the general layout of energy transfer and you know the throwing motion should look very 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 similar no matter what your build is right because it's not like you know the, nobody has a third arm nobody has a third leg like everybody's general throwing motion and the principles behind the leverage and the timing. And again, it's just the laws of physics applied to this incredible system of joints and levers within the body. You know, the application of physics to that is going to manifest in very, very, very similar ways from thrower to thrower. Um, obviously, there's, you know, those anatomical idiosyncrasies and some athletes will struggle to actually, you know, perform the, the technical model that you want. But then it's like, okay, but we also all have the same adaptive capabilities. So if an athlete has weird technique because uh, they lack hip mobility, right? Instead of, instead of individualizing their technique to fit their hip mobility, train their hip mobility to fit the optimal technical model. And so in that sense, it's like, okay, everybody is at a different starting point, uh, but everybody can work towards a very similar endpoint, but the paths to get there are obviously all going to be individual. Yeah, and that was that was one of the quotes that I wrote down that you you said already is that the technique is limited by your your movement capacity. And I'm interested, and you already mentioned the heat, uh, the hips, and kind of what you are seeing is kind of being the limiting factor for most athletes, and like what is keeping them from their technique in the most part. Yeah. So so the feet hips fine fascia that whole idea in general, you know, all of those areas tend to be very, very untrained in a lot of individuals. And so unless the athlete naturally is just a very mobile, mobile person, then those are going to be kind of like missing links. I kind of say feet, hips, spine, fascia, it's kind of like the linchpin to uh, transfer of athleticism where, you know, most athletes, if they spent their whole career, you know, squatting through the heels, you know, just banging heavy weight, you know, just a standard kind of strength and conditioning protocol. What weight room exercises train spinal segmentation? What weight room exercises train hip internal rotation? What weight room exercises train athletes to, to be stiff through the ankle and, and get onto the balls of their feet? It's and, all pretty non-existent. You know, it's definitely changing now. Like, don't, I, I think that there's been awesome, awesome um, kind of growth in the field in that regard right with the implementation of like FRC stuff and you know, the, the foot is like the new hot topic. <laughs> and then <laughs> right now, Dr. Tommy John with the spinal hygiene, like all of this stuff is, is kind of becoming more mainstream. 
Um, but on like a, uh, I would say like kind of in like the NCAA system, systematic level, like all that stuff is still missing uh, kind of a lot. So, you know, I think for, for most athletes, you know, I don't even think I could really pick, I can't really say like feet, hips, or spine, any one of those shows up as a bigger limiting factor than the other. It's all very kind of individual to any given athlete, but I think most athletes could benefit from you know, a lot more barefoot work. I think most athletes could really, really benefit from training hip internal rotation or really just hip rotation in general. That's, um, you know, just a big kind of missing piece. Um, and then spinal segmentation. And it's like, what, what is the downside to working on that stuff? Um, I really only see tremendous upside. And then even just kind of like testing it out, test the water, see, you know, put the athlete through a test. Can they, do they run on the balls of their feet? Do they have, can they sit comfortably in a 90, 90 position? Like, yes or no. Um, can they, can they do a segmented cat cow like that? Testing all of those would take five minutes, right. To, to see, okay, does the athlete need this stuff? And then it can all be implemented in like a five minute morning routine. So like really what is the downside? There's, there's massive upside for athleticism and very, very minimal like opportunity costs in terms of, of, of time and, and energy. Yeah, and I, I absolutely love the way you, you, you put it because you talked about like, where are they limited and what is their missing link? Because in some regards, you'll, you'll have a coach that will argue against these things and like they'll go with the point of, they just need to get their squat up and it'll fix a lot of things. And for many athletes, I think that's, I mean, that there's a, there's a point there. Like if you have a, 13, 14 year old athlete, super weak, 15 year old athlete, like super weak, you get their squat up, they're going to improve at their sport. Like that's going to happen. But if you're working with a high level athlete, like they most of nine, I would say with, and I'm, I'm, I'm with the football background. So 90% of the time, it's not strength is not their limiting factor. Like that is not what their limiting factor is. It's, it's the ability to get into positions they want to get into on the field. It's the, the ability to have movement options. And a lot of times that comes down to their hips. Like are they able to get into that position on the field? Is, is their foot strong enough to hold that up? Is their spine able to bend and move into the positions that you want to get into? And like you said, it's, it's their limiting factor. Like that, that's the thing they need to focus on more because their limiting factor is no longer the strength aspect of things. Yeah, no, 100%. And like, all you have to do is just watch like, you know, frame by frame video of some of these elite athletes. I love like basketball as an example, um, like a, like Kemba Walker, you know, and his step back crossover jump shot. If you freeze the video right as he's planting that, uh, the foot to kind of, you know, the fake uh, drive to the hoop and then he steps back off that leg, his hip is in ridiculous hip internal rotation. Um, so it's like, you know, you can't just try to copy that form because you don't have that range of motion. Um, and then, you know, just off of that, it's like, uh, you know, you can't, I mean, maybe that's not the best example with the step back, but um, something like in the javelin throw, if you're missing that range of motion, right, throwing a cue at an athlete to, you know, get your hips into the throw or whatever. Well, if that range of motion isn't there in the weight room or on, you know, in a drill, there's a 0% chance that you're going to hit that position in a full speed throw, you know, going full speed down a runway. Uh, so it's, you know, it's the same thing in football. Like if you're running full speed down a field, trying to avoid defenders, you know, trying to not get crushed, like your, your body can't, it can't use what it doesn't have. So I, I just think there's a huge sort of, you know, I, I guess kind of like what you were saying, you know, strength is always the answer, but I think it's just a huge false dichotomy um, that it has to be either or. Um, just like I said, like, it's so easy to implement this stuff. And, and then there's, there's guys like the athletic truth group guys are, are very clearly showing that strength versus flexibility and mobility is just a ridiculous argument to have because you can have both. You should have both. Every elite athlete has both. So what makes you special? Like, why do you not need it? Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, that you can't use what what you don't have. Like that, that's such a good right. like point because we had Cameron Joss on the podcast and he was mentioning like his goal for everything that he does, like strength, speed, mobility wise is to have, give his athletes foundations and reserves. So like if we're talking range of motion in this aspect, mobility, 
he, he needs a, a foundation of mobility and like reserves of mobility to be able to get in those positions. So they have that. And then all the sport does, all the technique does, all that work does is that now they're able to use it. Like you said, like now they're able to have better technique because they're able to get into the positions that they weren't able to get into before. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, I guess, I guess one thing that I would say about that, like a, a lot of coaches, for instance, they'll say, you know, if you have a strength reserve, then 80% effort feels, you know, so much easier. Like if you have a, a speed reserve, um, you know, then you'll be able to run faster, more relaxed. Um, but I don't know if I necessarily buy into that um, because I think that there's such a, an underappreciated kind of area of, you know, I don't even know what the right word to describe it is, but like what a Darian bar does, like maximizing the leverage of your, of your body um, in any given movement, understanding, you know, how your body functions as a system of levers that is a skill that has to be trained in and of itself. And it doesn't just magically appear by having, you know, an extra 20% of, of strength reserve or an extra 20% of speed reserve, right? If you run like garbage at 100%, you're still going to run like garbage at 80%, right? And I'm much more interested in improving top end speed by improving your 80% effort speed, just because there's so much more you can work on through you know, rhythm and relaxation and timing um, and these other other kind of positional principles like the Darian Bar will talk about like squatty running, right? If you're going max effort, full speed, you're not thinking about getting squatty, right? Your, your neck veins are bulging out and you're pounding your heels. And it's like, and, and I'm only saying that because I've been there, right? I've, I've done, you know, I spent years just doing max effort sprints and, you know, trying, trying to, you know, stimulate my nervous system because you have to run fast to get fast. And like, for me, it just ran me into the ground. I ended up with shin splints. I ended up with two torn labrums in my hips. Um, and obviously I, I had FAI, but I think that my case kind of is representative of just anybody who has a heinous lack of hip mobility. Um, so I just think that there's, there's more to the story than just, uh, a speed or strength reserve. I think that that's still operating in that same kind of muscle-driven mindset uh, that that a lot of these other kind of issues kind of stem from. And I'm interested. You you talked about finding a way to implement these hips, feet, spine, fascia, the, these these missing links and these these missing pieces into your day, um, and trying to, and one, I'm just processing this as a football coach to where if we're going to talk to, let's say a sports coach, we're going to talk to a team and we want to implement these things. If you come to them and say, Hey, we're going to spend the next hour on these things. They're going to look at you like, no, we're not like, we're not wasting that time. <laughs> you're going to get like, you're going to get a defensive thing. So how would you go about, and maybe you, you have a routine, but like, what's the best way to go about implementing this in that five minutes that you mentioned to where we're getting our biggest bang for our buck? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, definitely you're you're right like nobody's gonna do an hour worth of you know mobility stuff but that's where i think that um you know just like athlete empowerment is so important like get put put the personal responsibility onto the athlete to like say hey look you know you can do all this in five minutes just put it into your morning routine um you know if you really want to get better you know do it um and then you know i i think you know, the exact kind of implementation would be very, very dependent on where the athlete is at. Um, but I mean, you can't go wrong with spinal hygiene from Dr. Tommy John, um, right? Like the kind of flexion to extension, the side bends, even like the neck stuff, like I've gotten, you know, I don't do that every day. I don't do it for like five minutes a day, but I'll do it sometimes. And it's very helpful. There's something to it, just moving every part of your spine. But then, you know, for like the hips, uh, you know, there's all kinds of like basic FRC kind of positions, but I really like starting out with just seated hip lifts. Um, if that makes sense, kind of like if you're sitting with your feet right out in front of you and just lifting one foot at a time off the ground. Um, so it's kind of like a psoas raise. And then I'll do it with like feet turned in, feet turned out, and just get like a little, like it's almost like adding like spinach to your kid's smoothie or something, just like kind of like sneak in that rotational capacity just like little by little um and then once they kind of develop some level of capacity you can you can throw them into the 90 90 position 
I love the the hip cars that FRC does real just hug a rack and just rotate your hip through its full range of motion. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. And then I guess once you kind of get to that kind of isolated um, hip movement capacity, then you can start integrating it into, uh, I like doing Edo Portale squat mobility routine. Uh, I wouldn't do that initially just because, like I said, from my experience, like when I had FAI, I couldn't get into a deep squat without excruciating pinching pain in my hips. Um, So, you know, I just like to start somewhere a a little more isolated uh, just for safety's sake. But yeah, and and then even getting into like um, Cossack squats and stuff like that, like the, the, the creativity is the only limiting factor. Um, and then for the feet, dude, I just say barefoot jog, like that is the simplest, easiest way to strengthen your feet, get onto the balls of your feet, um, get onto a grassy field and go so slow that you don't even get out of breath because you're not doing it for cardio, right? You're doing it to strengthen your feet. You know, if you do 400 meters of, of barefoot jogging as part of your warm up every day, um, like eventually you're going to start feeling so springy and light on your feet. Uh, you know, it, it won't happen overnight, but it's one of those things where you build up that capacity super, super slow, little by little, day after day. Um, and, you know, within a few months, you know, within a year, definitely you'll be an entirely do, an entirely different athlete. Um, you know, I think, I think the, the feet, the feet for me were probably, was probably the biggest, um, like night and day shift in athleticism for me. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of like, and I think the feet is something that, like you said, is almost such a simple solution. Uh, and it happens so much quicker than a lot to just personal experience with the athletes that I've worked with is you're able to get the foot strength up and get them used to that a lot quicker than a lot of the hips and stuff like that, just because they're sitting all day, but like barefoot, you tell them like, all right, we're going to do some barefoot running today. We're going to do some, uh, we do a lot of barefoot, um, jumping as well, which is another thing that they do. And just the, the quickness you'll see. And one of the tests that we use Dr. Tommy John's like single leg stand as a test and you'll have guys come in, like they'll be able to do it literally like the other day it was, a, it was, a, it was the first day we had this athlete in, but he was able to do it for 25 seconds, like before his oh, foot man. full cramp. And I was like, Oh boy. Wow. So like literally like two weeks from now, like he's, he's almost always they're able to do it for like two minutes. And that's something that you'll see, like you said, like, it doesn't have to be something where you spend your whole life on or like every second of every day. All right, oh, man, I got to get my feet in. Like I got to get my hips in and like stressing about it. It's just something like now we're aware of it. Let's implement some things. Like you said, it can be in your warm up, and now it's going to make a huge difference into your game, into your technique, into what you're trying to do. Yeah. To add on to that, it's like, you're going to be doing a lot of this stuff anyway. Why not just do a barefoot, right? If you're, if you're going to send your athletes on a warm up lap, why not do a barefoot? If you're going to be doing, you know, if you're going to be doing ISO lunges or something, get out of those shoes, man. Like do a barefoot. If you're going to be doing little, little pogo hops, do a barefoot um, and just find ways to get onto the balls of your feet. And, you know, it's, it's such a simple solution. And I think that it's a huge kind of like, it's a perfect example of like, like an 80, 20 threshold where it's like, you really don't have to be doing all of those like big toe raises and, you know, all those, all those other random like foot strengthening exercises that you'll see on, on Instagram, like just get barefoot and and you'll see humongous gains. Yeah. And the one I want to take it a little bit, you, you had mentioned the, you'd much rather work on stuff at 80% than hundred percent and build that reserve just a little bit. I'm interested in how you do that in the technical world of throwing compared to the world of sprinting. And I'm, I'm relating this and I'm going to try and take some of this and apply it to the technical world of football. And when we're working on technique, are we doing it at hundred percent, always in game speed where you're, again, you're in that stress mode. You're not focusing on anything. You're just like focusing, basically not getting buried on the guy in front of you and how you implement that 80% method throughout your training. Yeah. So I think the biggest, the biggest area that I'll implement it in throwing, right. Whether it's like javelin throwing or if it's med ball throwing, um, one thing that I, I like to do is cue specific relaxation. Uh, so one of my favorite throwing cues is to have a, a dead arm, a quote unquote dead arm. Um, and I'll kind of use drills to introduce this concept, but the idea is that you totally relax your arm. It's just 
uh, a wet noodle attached to your body. And then you kind of find that pathway of energy transfer where you can uh, move your arm using your hips, right? Your arm doesn't move your arm and throne. Your hips move your arm. So it's kind of going to be like a figure eight kind of hip spine movement. And your arm is just along for the ride. I've posted a video of this on Instagram before. So like it's out there, but a little hard to, to, to paint a picture with words, but that's a cue that I'll use. I'll relate it from that drill into throws. And, you know, obviously if you're going max effort 100%, the natural tendency is to just muscle up and try to arm it. So when you're able to relax like that, you can consciously cueing the relaxation can let you consciously use, um, you know, I'll, the other cue I'll use is like left side driver. Um, so you use the left side to move the right side. Um, so it's just kind of like when you, when you put the brakes on a little bit, when you just take a little bit of that intensity away, you can, you can, you know, consciously cue these areas of, you know, what's the driver of movement, what's the reaction, uh, to the movement. And, you know, I just don't think, I don't think that exists with, you know, max effort. Um, and then obviously there's, you know, there's so many other areas of the throw that that can be applied to. Um, like I'll do crossover drills and I'll do them barefoot and I'll do them, you know, like low intensity. And, you know, you get reps in at these lower intensities to build up the capacity at these positions. So, you know, I, I like to do like squatty position crossovers. Um, where you get comfortable in that little knee bend position. Um, but if you're not initially prepared to do that at full speed, then your body's going to override that and, you know, use, you know, suboptimal movement patterns. So it's the same idea as like, you wouldn't just throw 500 pounds on a squat. The first day you try to squat, you build your way up. And I think that concept of progressive overload is so, uh, <laughs> I mean, underutilized in, you know, specific drilling situations, but it comes back to that idea of like, you know, you're limited by your body's physical capacity. So you have to build that up in specific ways. You know, I don't know if that really answered your question with like the 80% effort, but I think that's very related um, in terms of, you know, you gotta, you gotta build up from, from the bottom, from the bottom to the top. Yeah. And something else I kind of took from that and maybe I, I, I took it out. Of, maybe I translated a different way than what you're trying to say, but you're talking about like almost training that relaxation and you, you and I had already talked about the missing link, but relaxation is one of the biggest missing links in almost, I would say all of athletics you'll see. It, and you'll see it in the elite guys that just naturally do it. Like the elite guys are naturally athletic, whether it's hitting a baseball, whether it's pass rushing, like in moments when you would think they are tensed and stride, like, about to do it they're completely relaxed uh mma like punching you'll see these guys completely relaxed and just fluid like you said the the hip throws the arm stuff like that talking about missing link how are we ever training that relaxation and i think that that's an awesome point and something i'm going to start to like think about and how we implement that with the football guys it's like how do we ever train relaxation like you can tell a guy to relax but if you're having them go 100 percent like are we relaxing or or are we going 100 percent? and how are we working on that missing link yeah, 100%. And, and just to bring it back a little bit, um, you know, the feet, hips, spine, fashion, that's all about, you know, relaxation. Uh, you know, where I think, you, you know, when you see elite athletes move, one, it's proximally driven movement, right? It's all coming from hip rotation and, and kind of like the, the spinal engine, right? The side bending, hip, hip swivel, coiling core kind of idea. Um, it's coming proximally. And then the energy transfer happens distally. So it's the relaxation is a direct result of having that ability to drive movement from those proximal muscle groups, which you need the, the hip rotation in order to do that. You need the spinal segmentation in order to do that. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you'll see, you know, elite athletes like sprinting. I'm thinking especially of like, like sprinters or like Jonathan Edwards with the triple jump. Uh, you'll see they have that quote unquote whip from the hip where their, their leg just kind of like whips down to the ground. And again, like that's relaxation and it's coming from proximally driven movement, but then it's like, okay, well you can't just like 
flop your foot into the ground. So, so what's really happening there? And again, I think it's, it, it comes from having very, very strong feet, um, having the reflexive kind of like, you know, I think there's, there's something really important about the fact that the foot has so many like afferent nerve endings on the bottom of it, where I think if you train your foot enough, you wake those millions of nerve endings up and it's that kind of like afferent reflexive tension that kind of drives stiffness versus just like pounding your feet into the ground to drive, uh, you know, strong movement. Like you, you can't just pump your feet like pistons into the ground and expect to like transfer energy upwards. Um, you know, I think the body has a very, very natural pathway of one transferring energy from the feet to the hips to the ground, but then that same pathway that transfers, you know, feet, hips, the ground, it goes right back up ground, ground, feet, hips. Uh, you know, what goes in, it's the same pathway coming back up. So, um, you know, I think the relaxation really comes from the the same idea, the feet, hips, spine, fascia. Be able to unlock that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I'm definitely going to dig into pretty deep because I'm very much a, and this just naturally like, and I talk about it on a lot of podcasts is like, you, you wouldn't want to leaven of me on the football field just because I am the very like guy, but you, you, you'll watch the, you watch again, that elite guy. And he looks the exact opposite of me. It, it's not the grunts. It's not the like looking like he's effortful. It, it's that it's like the beautiful movement, you know, like it's nice <laughs> yeah. and relaxed and it's something to continue to strive for and everything that we try and train. Cause we're trying to train elite people. We're not trying to train a bunch of me's. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I, I can relate to that so much, like from my, my javelin throwing, looking back, like, you know, three or four years ago before I kind of came across a lot of Darien bar stuff. Um, I was like, wow, what is the disconnect between, you know, like my technique and Jan Zalesny's technique? Um, but through exploring a Darien bars ideas, especially the squatty idea, um, and then especially, um, you know, he, he gave me a lot of ideas about like, you know, torque production and stuff like that. But mostly the squatty idea, you know, you realize that that is one of the biggest, the biggest like difference between elite guys and sub elite guys is just getting low. And, you know, it's something that you kind of just like take for granted and don't really think about like, what does their knee angle look like through movement? Um, you know, are they on the balls of their feet? Are their knees bent? Um, and then you realize like, oh, okay, the squatty position is where it's at. So I try applying the squatty position to myself and I'm like, oh, wow, like this requires so much more hip mobility than what I was doing before. Let me work on that. Okay, now I open up that extra hip mobility, open up and then, you know, implement that into the squatty position. And now all of a sudden my crossovers look like Jan Zalesny's. So it's not rocket science. It's not like it's some like crazy, like Jan Zalesny was a genetic freak who, you know, nobody else can ever replicate his technique. It's just about reverse engineering it piece by piece, um, you know, at, at all of these different levels. Yeah. And like you said, piece by piece and a little bit, a little bit deeper than what most people are looking at it, because a lot of times it is the like, and again, I think it is a lot of times, and I think it goes back to the start of conversation that we had, but it's like kind of looking for what we want to look for rather than looking for what's actually there. Right. Boom. I love that. That, that was a good rabbit hole. We did it. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's transition uh, to the rapid fire rounds. And these are kind of the questions I mentioned before, but these are kind of like my selfish questions. These are ones that I really, really like. And the first one is kind of what are your favorite books? The, the books that kind of got your mind to where it's at now. Yeah, no, I love that you asked these questions. Um, so I'm going to give you a few. Um, my favorite book of all time uh, is called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Uh, it's totally a fiction book, and it's a thousand pages long, and it's just a daunting read. But it's one of those books that, you know, I say it's just empathy in book form. Like, if you want to understand, like, the human condition and you know, be able to like put yourself in, in the shoes of people who you just don't understand, right? It's a book about, um, it follows, uh, tennis, youth tennis athletes at a tennis academy and just their day-to-day -day struggles with like the athletic journey. Um, you know, they'll talk about like 
plateau management and they'll talk about like burnout um they'll talk about like what if you have to fart during a tennis match it's like those are the real struggles that like athletes face right nobody talks about that stuff um and then it follows guys in like a halfway house so it follows like drug addicts and and alcoholics and recovery alcoholics and it's like it just gives you this ability to put yourself in these shoes of these people that you know you would normally like look down on or you would normally just like scoff at um you know scoff at their struggles um so that's my favorite book of all time i I recommend that to everybody um second book is the book that i i really recommend that every human being on earth needs to read it um it's by mark manson the subtle art of not giving up i don't know if i can say that word yeah yeah the subtle art of not giving a fuck by mark manson um you know it's a book about values it's about deciding um you know what what you choose to to like pursue in life what what struggles do you want to uh face in life and it's about choosing that choose what you worship choose what you struggle for um and i think as an athlete that's so so important um you know just values and self-awareness and the power of of paying inward attention and the power of kind of getting out of that, you know, positive versus negative mindset, like good, bad uh, kind of mindset, right? Because the best experiences in life often come from, you know, horrible pain, right? The, the, the negative experiences often lead to, you know, positive growth. So if you always avoid the negative, then you're never going to get the positive. Um, so I think that's a super important book for everybody to read, um, uh, especially athletes and coaches. Uh, and then the third one, this is a, a recent addition into my top three, but uh, it's Godel Escherbach by Douglas Hofstadter. And basically it's a book about, he describes it as a book about how consciousness can emerge from unconscious objects. Uh, but in my eyes, it's, an absolutely beautifully written book about principles of logic and complex systems, which if you're a coach, you have to understand logic and complex systems because that's what athletes are, right? That's what the human body is. And, you know, it, it has nothing to do with, you know, sports performance or human anatomy, but it's the general principles behind it that are just absolute game changers. Um, and then I guess honorable mention books would be, the Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Um, you could easily change the title of that to The Art of Motor Learning. Um, you know, it's the principles of learning anything are the principles of learning everything. So um, I would definitely recommend that one too. Uh, since I'm a hipster, I don't want to say Anti-Fragile or The Alchemist because even though those are fantastic books, I just know everybody recommends them <laughs> to everybody. So I'm, I'm not going to say those. Um, and plus, I, I really despise, uh, what's his name, Tlaib? Yeah. Nassim Tlaib, I, I just despise his writing. Just way too way too overly pre- pretentious and pompous. Uh, so I just can't, can't recommend that book. I, <laughs> I love the book, but I know exactly what you're talking about, where he almost <laughs> writes it in a way where he wants to piss somebody off. It's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> he, he writes like he's trying to like come up with the perfect soundbite for Twitter. Um, which I think is exactly what he does, but I love the idea. So I won't knock it too hard. I love that. You, you gave me two books. That I've never heard anything of. And then the third book I have on the shelf ready to read. So that, that's a good list right there. Nice. What's, <laughs> what's the third book? Which the, one do you uh, have? Subtle, subtle art of not giving a fuck. I, I have that oh, one. Good. Yep. I have Beautiful. that book. I haven't heard of the first two, but so that's good. Whenever I brand new book, I'll add it to the list every time. So that's, yeah. that's an awesome list. The next kind of next question, and this is kind of how this podcast grows into these rabbit holes of stuff is uh, who's a guest you think we should have on? Yeah. So um, I was listening to Grant's podcast and he brought up Brett Adams. You have got to get Brett Adams on the show. Okay. This, that's this number man, two. Yeah. This is a man that nobody has heard of, but you know, I'll hop on a call with him every few months and it's just like a mind. It blows my mind every time. Like he's always got something new. Um, he's, he's a rabbit hole guy. I think you would love talking to him. Um, and then another guy I would say is, um, Ben Brewster from Tread Athletics. Uh, he's kind of another guy who, who he's, he's earned his, uh, a spot as 
you know, a um, expert in the field where he was a guy who, you know, he was an athlete himself and he was a guy who really had to fight hard for his um, athletic successes. Uh, but he's a really, really smart guy, really, really kind of on the same page as, as a lot of the same stuff that you um, are into in terms of thinking outside the box and um, just the mindset stuff. I love it. Next kind of question, and this is one of my favorite ones for the guest, is what's kind of next for you? Maybe it's the next one-year goal. Maybe you have something big planned for the next week. But, like, what's what's that next big step for you? Yeah, so right now the, the two big kind of projects in my life are, you know, one, my own athletic career. Uh, you know, I pretty much said after I graduated college and, and kept on training for a little bit longer, I was like, you know, I'm so close to that 80-meter mark. I would regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't put, if I didn't leave everything on the table to, um, to reach the, the marks that I want to hit. So, you know, Tokyo 2020 next year is the goal. Um, you know, just like I said, work, working hard towards that. Um, then the other big thing is just keep expanding the, the coaching stuff I'm doing. I, I really want to keep getting out uh, more new content, hopefully get a, a bigger, better platform up, um, get like a website up and running. So, uh, keep your eyes out for that. Um, but yeah, just, just working on, uh, the business and the throwing, man. <laughs> that, that, that's two good things to be working on right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next, next question. And this is kind of for when all the, the coaching and the throwing is over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be when all this, all this stuff's over? Yeah. So, uh, that's something that I think about a lot just because, you know, kind of like what I was talking about at the beginning is, I was so deeply affected by these guys on the internet that I've never met before, probably never will meet. Um, and yet somehow they changed the course of my life forever. Right. I'm so like, it almost makes me want to just cry, like thinking about how much of an impact these random guys on the internet have had on my life. Um, and so for me, it's like, I've never met these guys. I probably never will meet them. So how can I ever pay them back? Um, so my big goal is just to pay it back by paying it forward. Yeah, that's when you brought that up, I was going to bring, I was going to dive into that too, because that's what you're putting out on the content you're putting out. And like, I do the same exact thing as like to try and pay that forward. Like for me, it was like the Joe DeFranco's of the world, like totally changed every pathway of my life because he put out like Instagram posts or Facebook posts or whatever it was a blog at that time. And that that's one thing that I was, I was thinking about when you were talking about that is making sure like what we're putting out, like realizing it has that power, like realizing somebody is reading that and it has the potential to do what it did for you and me. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's what I'm going for, man. And then the, the last kind of the last question for the podcast is kind of your billboard message for somebody's in that valley. And maybe it is when the person gets injured, maybe it's when they finish last at that freshman fitness test and they're kind of <laughs> in a similar spot as you. Like, what's your message to make sure that person gets out of that valley and doesn't just stay there? Yeah, man, I would say turn the freaking page and, and do something different. Uh, I think a lot of people find themselves in those situations because they, they, they keep reliving, you know, the same, they're, they're, they're stuck in the same stage in their life that they're so ready to grow out of. Um, and I think a lot of the time the answer is so obvious of what they need to do different, right? You'll, you'll talk to somebody and be like, you know, why, why do you feel, why do you feel stuck right now? You know, what's like your day to day look like? They'll be like, Oh, well, you know, like, you know, you'll find out they stay up until like 3am every night. They're like, dude, like, you know, better you know that that is what is holding you back right now. Stop trying to rationalize it. Um, and I think it's so easy to tell yourself these stories without even realizing you're telling yourself these stories. So what I'll say is like, you know, if you really find yourself stuck, just flip everything you're doing on its head. You know, if you are somebody who sleeps in every morning, wake up early. If you're somebody who is, you know, overly neurotic about your training and nutrition, like, ease off a little bit, try to learn something new, try something different. Um, you know, get a, get an awesome haircut or something, but do something different, right? Because, you know, if you flip a valley upside down, it's a peak. So just flip it all upside down and, and see what happens, but pay attention 
to, you know, these, these things you're telling yourself, because if you don't pay attention, that's where you just get stuck in that, that default, you know, human mode of, you know, following the crowd and, and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but there's no room for that as an athlete. So, you know, do something different and, and don't back down from being different. Gotcha. I love that. Flip a valley upside down. It's a peak that that's a money quote right there. That might be the Instagram post right there. This is some good stuff. Coach, thanks for being on this. This was awesome. Thanks for diving into some of these rabbit holes for me and taking the time out of your day to do this. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. It was fun. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.